The Bible passage for this morning is John chapter 6, verses 25 through 71. Um, you can find the book of John by looking in the table of contents in the front of the Pew Bible in front of you, or a Bible if you happen to bring it along with you. If you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to take that Pew Bible home with you. That is a gift from us to you. So starting in chapter 6, verse 25. When they, that is the crowd, found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to an eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews be there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the 12 was later to betray him. Thank you, Sharon. Good morning. Great to see you all. For those of you who maybe this is your first Sunday, maybe you're a college student checking us out for the first time. My name is Devin. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at High Point. Uh, and it's so exciting to see you all here this morning because I just remember this moment earlier in the spring when, do you know what it's like when you do something, you have a really good time, you just want to repeat it right away? Yeah, so earlier in the spring, we were all sitting around, uh, pastors and other staff were like, wow, we just really love daylight saving. Is there any way that we could replicate that experience like sooner? <laughs> and so we thought, why not bump the services up just because we can? <laughs> Thank you all for paying attention and for showing up half an hour earlier. That is a great thing that you are doing practically for your church, whether it feels like it or not. Um, before I get into the word, I also just want to say just one more thing about the child dedication. I want to urge all of you, whenever you see walking through the halls, baby Ezra or some other little kid who's just learning to walk or a couple kindergartners wrestling or somebody tripping and skinning a knee and sobbing looking for their mom, uh, take all of those as a reminder to you personally, whether you are a parent, whether you have kids, whether you want kids and don't have them, like whoever you are, when you see those little ones running around, take that as a reminder, flip a little switch in your head that says, be the church that you wish you had when you were that size. I would urge all of you, take your responsibility as members of the household and the family of God very seriously, uh, because really, the community of faith that we build is going to be the community that determines for better and for worse what these little ones think of Jesus think of God for the rest of their lives. I mean, I, I have the privilege of talking with so many people, and I know from painful experience how many people struggle with like, overcoming hurt that they experienced in their biological family of origin when they were small. That same principle just translates sideways into life in the church. 
Let's not be a community that causes any of these little ones to stumble. Amen? Will you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you that your words are spirit and are life. I thank you that uh, if we believe in you, we will already have eaten. We can't, we can't believe unless we have eaten. Lord, so we ask today that you would draw us to yourself, that the Father would be drawing us, all of us, whether we're coming to you for the first time or you're just pulling us deeper and deeper into the life and the love and the light and the mystery that you are. So come speak what's pleasing to you today, to each one of us, uh, from your heart through my mouth to all of your people. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I really like to read kind of nerdy nonfiction books. I like a novel every now and again, but one of my favorite things to read is nonfiction. I just like good writers writing about interesting topics. And this last week, my wife gave me a book uh, written by kind of a, actually a Quaker, like the, the Christian spiritual offshoot movement called Quakers, and it was a Quaker writing about the concept of vocation. So like, the idea of being called, like identifying who we are and understanding ourselves as called in some sense. And so I sat down, yesterday afternoon, flicked on a light switch and started to read this book and was enjoying it, but because I am the kind of nerd that I am, pretty soon I wasn't just thinking about the book, I was thinking about the lamp. Um, a, lot of us, a lot of us take light for granted. It's just, it's a thing, it's there. We're, we're, we're dependent on it all the time. Sometimes we're turning it on, sometimes we're turning it off. Often I'm yelling at my kids to turn it off. And, it's, it seems so simple, so fundamental, so elemental. It's just light, it's just there. But when you go deeper and you start poking around and ask yourself, what actually is light? This thing that I depend on for my life day in and day out, what you find is that it's super complicated. Super complicated. For the physicists in the room, you know that uh, light, when you're describing it, you have to understand it on the one hand as both a particle and as a wave which is kind of like saying that light is a tennis ball and a jump rope that you're shaking up and down, and it's both of them at the same time. If that doesn't make sense, right. <laughs> exactly, that's kind of the point. Um, what you've run right into there is what you could call a paradox. It's two things that don't seem like they should be true at the same time, but in fact, they have to be true at the same time. And the, the harder you start to stare at reality, the more you poke around under the hood, the more you find that we're just surrounded by paradox. Things that seem simple and single are actually like elegantly complicated just underneath the surface. So today what I want to poke around at is a paradox that's at the heart of John chapter six. And that paradox is the nature of faith. Because what Jesus basically teaches us in John chapter six is this, that on the one hand, faith is God's work in us. It is a thing that God does. And on the other hand, faith is a thing that we do. We are absolutely called on to believe and to believe the right thing. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about this paradoxical nature of faith as God's work and ours. And then we're gonna talk about why it's good news that faith is both God's a divine thing, and ours, a human thing. Before I go there, I just want to recap for a second. How many of you, uh, if you're like me and you do read nerdy books, some, do you ever like read the first chapter of a book and then the last chapter of a book to get a sense of what it's really about and then kind of skim the middle to see if it's really worth reading? 
Um, think back to the very first sermon in this series on the whole Gospel of John, where, where Pastor Nick started in John chapter 20, verse 31, where John says that the point of the book of the Gospel of John is this, these things were written so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. Two key terms there, believe, life. Believe, life. The next sermon after that, when we jump back to the first chapter of the book, verses 1 to 18, just called the prologue to the Gospel of John, we talked about what life is and how at the end of the day, God is life. That God who creates the world out of nothing, who sustains the world existence, is the only source of eternal, unending life. And for all of us who want for who want to be integrated into God's life, there's only one way in, and that way is Jesus, that Jesus becomes this like contact point for us, human beings who are mortal, into God's immortality, into God's eternality. You could think about this in the same way that you think about like plugging in uh, any appliance into a wall outlet. There's incredible power in the wall, enough to power whatever it is you're plugging in. But if your life experience is like mine, you've lived in another country where like, the wall outlets are wired to a different voltage than what your appliance is built to handle, if you plug it in, you're gonna fry your appliance. You need some sort of contact point in between. And thank God, some electrician who's smarter than me invented a downstep converter so that I can plug my American-made appliance into a higher voltage wall outlet and not destroy the appliance. And Jesus is kind of like that downstep converter. In the incarnation, he comes to us and he makes himself available so that when we become like plugged into Jesus, we get plugged into the internal life of God so that we will never die. Okay, awesome, that's eternal life. But remember John 20, 31. John 20, 31 says, by believing you have life. So what's this faith thing then really? If you put the sermon on life together with this one, I think you sort of end up with what I think about John 20, 31. I don't know if there is another portion of the Gospel of John that gives us this clear line of sight on this mysterious thing called faith as John chapter 6. So let's go there right now. I am going to focus most of this whole sermon on these two verses, John 6, 28 and 6, 29 simply because I think they're gonna help us the most grasp this concept of faith. Uh, Faith is a way bigger deal in the Gospel of John than maybe any other book in the New Testament. If you looked for the just occurrences of the verb to believe across the New Testament, this is what you'd find. 98 occurrences in the Gospel of John. Nearly 100 times that John just uses the verb to believe, like the act of believing is really important for John. Compare that to the other three Gospels. The verb to believe only occurs about 30 times. The verb to believe occurs only about 54 times in all of Paul's letters. So you get more occurrences of the verb to believe in the Gospel of John than you get in all the other Gospels and all of Paul's letters combined. It's a big deal. And it's, it's not just a big deal because the word occurs a lot, it's a big deal because there's a lot at stake like, this is the precursor to eternal life. Without belief, there is no eternal life. John is clear. So, what is believing? What does that mean? And this is where we start. We start with this question. The crowds come to Jesus, and they ask him this. What must we do to perform the works of God? Now, that question is a really good question. 
performing the works of God. Like, the, the crowds understand that in order to be righteous, God calls them to live in a certain way, and they understand that it's not easy or simple or natural to live up to God's standard. So they say, what do we need? How is it possible? How are we gonna perform the works of God? Jesus' answer is like classic Jesus in the Gospel of John. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You can blow right past that verse. I'm willing to bet that when you hear it read, you don't really pick up on all of the nuance that's hiding in Jesus' answer. The problem is that there's like two ways to understand these words. And remember that in the Gospel of John, Jesus has so much fun playing with words. Like what, what does he say to the woman at the well? What he says to the woman at the well is there's this living water, right? There's this living water. And if you drink from that water, you're never gonna be thirsty. The problem is that in Greek, the word zone means living water in the sense of like living a life alive, but it also can just mean running water. So the woman doesn't think that Jesus is telling her anything supernatural about the way to salvation. The woman thinks that Jesus is telling her that there's a stream like gurgling and trickling along and she would rather go and get her water there than have to like drop down a bucket into this well and haul it back up. But Jesus means living water. The woman misses it because he's playing with words. Think about what Jesus does with Nicodemus when he looks at Nicodemus and says, you must be born again, right? Nicodemus is like, that is logically impossible. Um, What do you mean? Nicodemus at least picks up on the fact that Jesus has to be kind of toying with him, right? Uh, But what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is you have to be born in Greek, anothen, which does literally mean a second time, but it also at the same time, it's a word that means from above. So Jesus is looking at Nicodemus and saying, you have to be born a second time, and being born a second time is also at the same time being born from above. Jesus is saying two things at once in one word, and it's no wonder that Nicodemus and the rest of us get confused sometimes, right? That's the same thing that's happening here. In this verse, Jesus says, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, on the one hand, Jesus is clearly saying that our belief is God's own work. And Jesus is also, I think, just as clearly saying that our belief is our own work, both at the same time. Let me explain uh, how I'm getting there. I'm gonna run a little bit throughout the text. If you have your Bible open in front of you, you can follow along, but I'm gonna try to give you some verse markers here and there along the way. Our belief is God's work. Think about what a terribly difficult time people are having throughout the Gospel of John making sense of who Jesus is. Just totally flummoxed by him. I've already given a couple examples, like the woman at the well, the disciples, Nicodemus, and more. What Jesus says here later on, this is in chapter six, verse 45, Jesus says that they will all be taught by God and everyone who has heard the Father and has learned from him comes to me. It's only the people who hear from God, who are taught of God, who have learned from God who Jesus is, who end up coming to Jesus. Nobody figures it out on their own. It's the work of the Father helping the crowds recognize who Jesus is and distinguish him from anybody else. Okay? Nobody can come to the Father unless the Father draws them. Verse 44, 
Literally, he's saying, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. And this is the image that you should have. I mean, it's kind of like um, if you imagine somebody who's fallen down into a pit or into a ravine, and they're just trying to scramble up to the top, and they can't get up on their own power. You can't get up to the top unless somebody throws a rope down and starts to haul you out, right? So Jesus is saying that nobody can get to that top of that ravine Nobody can come to him, Jesus, at the top unless the Father is the one who's pulling you up and pulling you out. He says basically the same thing again in verse 65. No one can come to me unless the Father has, quote, enabled them. Um, That's what the NIV says, enabled them. I want to just pause again and note, it's a bit of a mistranslation. What it literally says is no one can come to me unless it is given by the Father. And the reason that verb to give is important is because it's intentionally recalling the language of the first 18 verses of the gospel again. In 1.12, what John says is that to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God. Nobody can come to Jesus unless the power to become God's child is given to them by the Father. That's you, that's me, that's the crowds. So what's the point here? Really quickly, in a nutshell, the point is, at some level, our faith, our belief, our coming to Jesus is only explainable as the work of Jesus' Father. He's the one who's letting us know who Jesus is. He's the one who's giving us the power to come to Jesus. He's the one who's drawing us, like pulling us up out of the ravine. Now, I think that idea is at least reasonably clear. I mean, I can, make, I can make sense of that, even if it's a bit alarming. I mean, I don't necessarily like to think that something as important as my belief, as my faith, doesn't reside with me, isn't totally mine to control. But I, I think John is, John's fairly straightforward on this point. The Father has to draw us. The Father has to draw us. But hang on, because this is where it starts to get a little bit complicated. Our believing is still our believing. Jesus is clear. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Personal faith is super important in this passage. Like what we do in in response to Jesus is absolutely essential. I mean, verse 35, coming to Jesus is believing in Jesus. Like who does the coming? It's not... It's not that we're just pulled all the way to Jesus unconscious, like we actually go. We go, he calls, we go. The one who believes has eternal life, verses 40 and verse 47. Who does the believing? It's clear. The people, all of us, we are invited to do the believing. We actually have to engage the center of our being that does the act of believing and then we do it. And at the very end, I mean, the climax of this passage is two groups of disciples. There's huge crowds who have been following Jesus all over the place, and then there's the 12. And when Jesus says crazy things like, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and the crowds can't really make sense of it, what do they do? Even though they've been following Jesus, they turn and leave. Like, they turn and leave. They don't continue to believe in Jesus. But the 12 stay. And of the 12 who stay, there are 11 who believe. Like, 
The fact that they believe is really important, and it's not a mistake that in some sense that is the culminating point of this whole story. The point is when you see them believing, you're supposed to see both of these dynamics in play. On the one hand, the only reason they're able to stick with Jesus when he says things that sound impossible is because the Father is the one who's opening their eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. It's the Father who's drawing them to Jesus. And on the other hand, they also have to sit with the cognitive dissonance that comes when Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they decide to persist and believe and stick it out. Both are happening. And you're supposed to see both of them happening in the 11 at the very end of this chapter. Now, at this point, it kind of feels like John is talking out of both sides of his mouth. Like, how on earth is that possible? Our belief is what we do. Our belief is what God does. If you are struggling to make sense of this, let me just say that this is what you could call classically a paradox. And here's just a simple illustration of what I mean. If you were gonna look at that blue wall, bluish purplish, and you saw a rectangle or a square shadow on the wall, and then I asked you, what is making the shadow? What would you say? I mean, you'd say like a shoebox, a cube. And then I said, okay, how about we look at the yellow wall? You got a circular shadow there, so what's making that circular shadow? And he'd probably say something like, I mean, I don't know, a a ball or a circle of some kind? And you wouldn't necessarily first think to yourself, oh, there's one object that can make both of those shadows simultaneously. Looks like a soup can. It's a cylinder. Can produce both at the same time, even though it doesn't look like it should be able to. Both of these things can be true at the same time. You can have a square shadow and a circular shadow coming from the same thing. And faith is shaped like a soup can. It can produce a shadow that makes it look like it's everything that God does, and it looks like it's everything that we do all at the same time. And it doesn't work out mathematically. If you're, like, if you're trying to do the numbers in your head, and you're like, is faith 75% God and 25% me? Or is it 25% the other way and 75% the other way? The answer is no, it's 100 and 100. It's all that God does and it's all that we do. That math is gonna break down on you, but it's not math that breaks down because John is talking out of both sides of his mouth and is giving you a contradiction. It's because he's inviting you to see a paradox that's pointing you through to a deeper level of spiritual reality than would meet your eye otherwise. Light is a particle and a wave at the same time. Every physicist knows that our simple view of reality breaks down when we start to look a little closer. Faith is all God and all us at the same time. Just about every theologian I've ever read knows that the harder you look at this, the harder you study scripture, the more you see that both are there irreducibly at the same time. Okay, if your head hurts, if it doesn't make sense to you right there, that's actually probably a sign that you're getting it. Like, really, if you're trying to resolve something that just seems like it just doesn't compute square peg, round hole, that's the tension that you need to sit with to really appreciate this. Now, let's talk about why this is a good thing, that faith has characteristics that reveal it to be both God's work in us and our work, our active belief that we do for God. Um, There was a time, there was a season in my Christian life And this would have been, I think, about the summer of 2012, 
what that I look back on is probably the lowest period, the most difficult and stressful period in the whole of my Christian life. Uh, this is when I was, I was in graduate school. I was studying for a PhD in New Testament studies, and I had just given myself for years to trying to really figure out this Christianity thing. I, I mean, I grew up in a church that was really strong in some ways and really not strong in other ways, and I, I knew because of the way that I'd encountered the truth and the power of God that all I really wanted to do was know God, love God, and be a good Christian. But I also knew that I, my faith was super deficient in some ways, and I was desperately trying to find a church community that embodied the wholeness of the life of God. Uh, and I had pushed for years and years and years and years and years, even to the point of like saying, I'm gonna do the craziest thing I can imagine and go to graduate school, which is just a terrible life decision. And so I, I could take you back, I could take you back to that summer of 2012 in the Chinese restaurant that I was walking out of when finally it just clicked for me. I decided, God, I am so disappointed in the church, so disappointed. And I find being a Christian incredibly hard. I am genuinely miserable trying to do it. But I know this with absolute certainty, that there is a God, that Jesus is him, and that even if it kills me, I am going to be his disciple. Now, when I look back on that day in 2012, from you know, the distance of like 11 years at this point, the only way I can explain that to myself when I consider how deeply miserable and uncomfortable I was is that God was upholding me. That the faith that I experienced right then, that was the work of God holding me up when otherwise I would have absolutely collapsed under the pressure. And this is one reason why it is fantastic news for all of you that faith is the work of God. Because at some point in your life, at some point you are going to run into an obstacle that is too high for you to climb. You're gonna fall into a ravine that's too deep for you to get out of. Something is going to go so absolutely, painfully, brutally wrong that if you were left to your own devices, it would end your faith. It would be the end of your walk with God. You're gonna bury a parent you're gonna bury a spouse, you're gonna bury a child. You're gonna lose your job and the vocation that you worked towards for decades is gonna go up in smoke like that. The church that you invested in, your whole life, gave so much of your money to is gonna split for a stupid reason. And you, you know, you're gonna be left trying to like figure out the relational debris field afterwards. Something is going to come along with such force that it could sweep you right off the foundation of your faith. And this is the awesome news of John 6 for you, is that God's the one holding you steady. But even more than that, like you're also gonna find this not just in the extreme circumstances of your life, which will come, you're also gonna find this in kind of like the day-to-day -day mundane experiences of your life. So like for me, you, what you see me doing right now, standing up and talking actively about the Bible, that for me is only, I can only explain it to myself and to all of you as saying that God is upholding me in faith because I am absolutely convinced that the work of teaching the Bible is humanly impossible. That when Sharon stood up and read the text that we read today, we didn't just hear a woman reading words that were written thousands of years ago. We were actually being addressed by the voice of the living God. 
as Sharon was reading to all of us. Amen. And if, if that is true, if the words of spirit and life are like coming to us through the PA system today, and, like, and God is the great mystery of the world whose ways are unsearchable and past finding out, then I am absolutely in myself, left to my own devices, incapable of telling you anything that should get you out of bed to get here at 8.30 on a Sunday morning. I have to believe that God is the one upholding me, making it possible that all of you would receive not just like the words of a human being, but would be hearing directly from God. You will find that same dynamic at work in your own lives, in the day-to-day mundane operations of your life, in loving your spouse, and loving your kids, and being a faithful employee in everything that you do. And I have to marvel at this, because for me, this, this leads me to another reason why it's great news that the faith that I live, the faith that I express and that you express on a day-to-day basis is super good news because what it tells me basically is how valuable and dignified we are as human beings and as God's children. Now, I want to pause on that because you might think it was the other way around. You might think to yourself, well, if it's all God, doesn't that just like diminish the value of who I am and what I do? Remember, verse 37 says that the Father gives the people who believe to Jesus. What would God give to God that would be like the utmost gift? The Father gives us to Jesus. We are the gift given to Jesus. So my faith doesn't like diminish the value of my action. The fact that my faith is God's work actually tells me of my incredible power and dignity and worth as a human being, that I would be the thing that God would choose to give to Jesus. Here's a truth from Isaiah 43 where I think we just see both, both of these themes so beautifully combined. The fact that our faith is going to be like the work of God upholding us and dignifying us, sustaining us, his own joy in us as his possession. This is just the first three verses of Isaiah 43. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You and I are being upheld, and we belong to him. And he calls us because he loves us. That's awesome news. But here's the flip side of the coin. There's still waters that could sweep us aside. There's still a fire that could consume us. Like Sometimes we are actually going to have to continue to walk us by faith through all of those super painful circumstances. And this is the other side of the life of faith. So let me go back to that time in my life, that time in the summer of 2012, when I know that God was sustaining my faith and that it might have failed otherwise, I can take you right back again to that Chinese restaurant in the summer of 2012 and say that at the time when God upheld me, at a time when I absolutely otherwise could have just collapsed and fallen flat on my face, that I also chose to believe that I was not gonna let go, that I had considered all the alternatives, and that even if being a Christian made me miserable for the rest of my life, I was not gonna let go. 
you will all have to make that same decision at some point in your life, whether it means coming to Jesus for the first time or persevering in, uh, in Jesus and in faith until the time when he returns or we all die. Let me say now, the first kind of faith that John really cares about in this passage is the kind of faith that brings us to Jesus. Because in some way, this is still all leading us toward that John 20, 31 moment. These things are written so that you may believe and that by believing, have life in his name. So, this is what I'd say. Picture the world as like a gigantic skyscraper. There was a time when I lived in a city that had just terrible building codes and people were just finding cracks in all of these big buildings, these high-rise apartments, these parking garages, all of it. It's really kind of alarming. And, and then I realized, no, that, that's actually kind of what the world is. The world is like a skyscraper that's built with super shoddy building codes. If you can picture the world, like if whoever you like to vote for, look around outside at the state of civilization. Can you see the cracks? Can you see how precarious it is? Can you see how even if there's some stuff that looks good, the whole thing feels like it's just swaying a little more in the wind than you'd like? If that's you, then you see the power of sin in the world. Now, can you also see the fact that all of us, you know, by virtue of living in that skyscraper, are the sort of tradesmen and inhabitants who are responsible for making that tower stand up? And can you see the way that your mistakes and mine put other people at huge risk and sometimes really, really hurt them when our work snaps and ends up crushing somebody? Can you feel the culpability if that's you, then you do feel the weight of your own sin. Now, can you see Jesus as the engineer and as the craftsman who runs into the building to warn everybody that this thing is coming down, but that you don't have to die there, that you can be saved? And he stays in there until his last breath, urging everybody, get out, get out, get out, get out, until finally it collapses and kills him too. Then you see the love of God in Christ. And now, would you want to then live the rest of your life like Jesus, warning everybody else and trying to do your level best to save people from the precarious situation that they find themselves in? Would you want people to forgive you and God himself to forgive you for the way that you've harmed yourself, put other people at risk, and offended him? If that's you, then you see the gospel. And if you see that gospel, the only explanation for it is that the Father Jesus' Father is drawing you to Jesus, and you should believe and say, that's how I want to live my life. I want to live my life the way Jesus did. And if that is you, I'd urge you, at the end of this sermon, there's going to be an opportunity to pray with some people right down here by that big sign that says prayer. Yeah, it's going to be everything that you do. You are going to have to decide to believe in Jesus. But if you're a Christian like me, and you are a person of faith, then the challenge is also to continue believing. Don't stop. When you come to Jesus, you will have to persevere, and that's going to be the nature of faith. This is awesome news for us because it means that your decisions and mine matter. They matter deeply. We are not like non-playable characters in a video game. We are not just like figments of some programmer's imagination. We are not just strapped into some sort of cosmic roller coaster where it really doesn't matter or anything if we're going up or down and we have no say in it. No, that's not the way it is. Our, our wills are dignified. Our wills, in fact, I'll even go so far as to say they get to like cooperate with God. And, and here's why I'd say this. Think about the logic of how Jesus does stuff in the Gospel of John. 
What is the logic of Jesus' signs? The signs that are testifying to him, that are telling us who Jesus is and who the Father is. Um, What Jesus says, I'm just going to quote one passage from John chapter 14, starting in verse 10. John says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Okay, so when you think back to the signs, the multiplication of the loaves, the water to wine, the walking on water, all of that, who's doing it? Jesus or the Father? Yes. Yes. Verse 10, 14, 10, the Father living in Jesus is doing the works. But also, verse 12, the works I have been doing. The way that Jesus, the Son of God on the earth, worked was the Father doing it and Him doing it at the same time. And that means that when we come to an act that we perform, like the act of faith, The only way to understand it is to say that, oh my word, because the Father has drawn us, because the Father is at work in us, now our work is as divine as Jesus' work. It is what the Father does. It is what we do at the same time. Our faith is the first moment in which our human works go from being merely human works to being properly Jesus-like works. And that is an amazing, mind-blowing lesson to me. Worship team, I'm going to invite you to come. My point really, it boils down to this. I mean, that faith is a paradox. It's like light. It's particle and wave. If faith had a shape, it would look like a can of Campbell's soup that you'd pull out of your, that you'd pull out of your pantry. And it's an awesome thing that a cylinder has the properties of a rectangle and the properties of a circle all at once. And it's fantastic news for all of us that faith is a mystery of God that has properties of absolute, unquenchable divine action and at the same time can't be explained without understanding our human action. It's both at the same time. And at some stage in your Christian life, you're going to be really glad that it's one. And at another stage in your Christian life, you're going to be super thankful that it's the other. Both of them tell you about God's love for you. Both of them tell you about like your dignity and mine as human beings, that we would be the ones that God would call. We need that spiritual cylinder. And that's a paradox that can feel like a contradiction. That's a paradox that will drive some people away from the faith. But it doesn't have to. You don't have to see it as a contradiction. I'd encourage all of you to see it as a deeper invitation to life. Because at the end of the day, the Christianity that we live day in and day out is a religion of paradoxes, just like the world that we inhabit, that physicists know, that physical reality is a world full of paradoxes. That's really what I'm inviting you to see today. Our God is three and one at the same time. Jesus is two natures, and one person, all at the same time. Scripture is the word of God and human words, all at the same time. And our faith is the work of God 
and our human work all at the same time. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? But God, I thank you that you've drawn us to the Father. I thank you that you say that if you are lifted up, you'll draw everyone to yourself. Continue to draw us today. Draw especially those who don't yet know you. Bring them to the knowledge and love of you. For those of us who do know you, continue to draw us so that we persevere in you. But also help us to return to you that those lives of faith and joy that are pleasing to you and that are worthy of our status as like the gifts that you would give to Jesus. And all of this be glorified, we pray. Amen.